Good morning. I'm impressed that you were able to sled safely here uh, this morning on the snowy and icy roads that we have outside. Uh, it is good to be here. Now, I had someone tell me last week that uh, they asked me how old I was, and they said, I, I could sort of tell you're a kid of the 80s, and that is true. I can't hide from that reality. It's, uh, I, I, I might try to fake that I am younger than I am, but I am not. And in the 80s, there was a hot toy. I mean, very, very hot. It involved many different colors, and you would turn it, and uh, it was, in my mind, an impossible game. It was called the Rubik's Cube. Now, for some people, the Rubik's Cube was sort of their, their uh, shining, one shining moment in their whole life because uh, you were the only kid who could successfully solve the Rubik's Cube. You may have even entered into contests to see how fast you could solve the Rubik's Cube. To me, the only way to solve the Rubik's Cube was to buy a new one, uh, because in the package, all the colors were, were lined up, or peel the stickers off, but people usually could tell by the fact that they would never quite get on there right again that you had uh, done it the wrong way. That was back in the 80s when we only made seemingly unwinnable games. We now live in 2023 where there are unwinnable games, right? Because of the invention of this little thing right here that has more computing power than your computer did back in probably 2010. Would you say that's a safe bet? Yeah, it's 2010. We can create algorithms that can constantly make a game more and more difficult. I have one of those little games on my phone. It's called Threes. Please don't download it. It's a giant waste of time. I will be sitting there playing it, and it's just you match things up, and you get threes together, and you make bigger numbers. The problem is it goes on forever. My wife said to me, so have you won that game yet? I'm like, you can't win that game. And maybe you have a favorite game like that as well. You might beat your high score, but you still lose at the end. And why are games like that? Because computer programmers figured out that us human beings have this chemical in us called dopamine. So you get that little bell that someone posted about the thing you put on Instagram and a little dopamine comes out. You solve that line on Candy Crush and have the big explosion, you get a little bit of dopamine. And they know if they make that algorithm just right, they can have you constantly searching for the next dopamine hit, even though you know it's a failing effort. Even though you know you'll never win, but you'll always be looking for the next hit. In many ways, I want us to keep that in mind when we look at the beginning of this text today. Rich has uh, already read it for us, but notice how it begins. Not in the most optimistic way, but in a very discouraging way because of where Paul is in the context. Paul says it straight up. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. What is Paul saying? The law is a losing game. No one will win the game of the law. And we're going to look at this text to understand why is Paul bringing that up. 
And what do we do in response to that? Now, I want us to, we're going to break it up just into two sections. The brick wall of the law, and then we're going to look at the breakthrough of the cross. So the brick wall of the law, the breakthrough of the cross, very simple. First, we need to examine why is Paul saying that everyone who depends on the works of the law are under a curse? Why is he telling us that the law is a loser's game? Well, because he's been contrasting here in chapter 3 two different ways to be in relationship with God. And he's asking the Galatians straight up, how did you begin your walk with God Was it through hearing the good news about Jesus and receiving it by faith, or was it by doing the works of the law? And he's trying to reiterate this. He reiterates it over and over again. He says it over and over again. Was it by hearing by faith, or was it by doing the works of the law? And he's trying to underscore that if you started in your relationship with God by simply hearing the gospel, that's the good news about Jesus, and believing it by faith, why would you want to start trying to do the law? Why would you want to continue in a way that is completely antithetical to the way you actually were able to be accepted by God and received in the Christian community and have the Holy Spirit Why would you want to try a different way? Paul's been asking that question. And so here in verse 10 through 14, Paul is underscoring another reason why you should not switch from faith to trying to make God happy by the things you do, by obeying the law. And here's why he says, because the law is a loser's game. You simply cannot win by the law. Why? Because everyone is cursed if you don't do every single thing in the law. Did you know that the law, at least according to some uh, who have tried to summarize all of the commands of Scripture, that there are 365 negative commandments in the law, thou shalt not kind of things. 365 There are over 250 positive commandments. 600 should do such and such. So you add them all together, there are almost 600 commands of the law. Paul says that would be all well and good except for the reality that if you want to be right with God because of the law, here's the catch. You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now, where is he quoting this from? It's from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Now, I know that by the time you've gotten through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, if you're reading through the Bible, you get to Deuteronomy and you think, this is like a repeat. Did they have those back you know, thousands of years ago where they repeated the same show over again. As a matter of fact, the word uh, Deuteronomy is the second law, the second giving of the law. So it is, in many ways, a refresher course on what God expects of his people. And toward the end of that book, God decided to give a very dramatic picture of Israel on one mountain, and he put six tribes of Israel on another mountain, 
And there they read out, the Levites, those people who were responsible for the worship of God's people, read out the blessings available for obeying all of those rules, all of the law that God had done. And then they also read out all of the liabilities, the curses that would come if people did not obey the law. And every time they read uh, something about the blessing, the people on one side would go, Amen! And whenever they would read out something about the curse, the six tribes on the other mountain would go, Amen! In other words, may it be so. And that was a very graphic illustration that being in a covenant with God meant that there were expectations that they acted like people who were in relationship with God. But there at the end of those curses, we see this verse. It's sort of a summary of all of the curses. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. In other words... The law is a loser's game. Now, I know you're sitting there. We've got some really advanced students here. And you're thinking, so what was the point of the law? We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Paul talks about that. He's going to ask that question. So why the law? That's not our concern today. Right now, we're looking at Paul, who is exegeting Scripture. He's actually referring to four different verses from the Old Testament in these four verses In 10, 11, 12, and 13, he uses four verse references because he's doing a very tight and careful exegesis of the question, can you break through with the law? And he says, no. He he just states the position right up front. You cannot win with the law because if you don't do everything in the law, then you're under a curse. And so then he says, look, let, let me say it a different way. And in the next two verses, he says it in a different way. He says, there are ways that we can try to approach God. There is the way of faith, and there is a way of obedience. And so we'll start with the, sec- the second in the text, uh, which I think is the, f- the first, uh, really, that we should consider. Notice in verse 12, Paul says, but the law is not, or excuse me, let's back up. Now it is evident, verse 11, that no one is justified b- by God, by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There he's quoting from Habakkuk, your favorite book in the Bible, I'm sure. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Now, that passage can also be interpreted uh, here in my ESV Bible. I actually have in very small print that that will live. Translated, the one who by faith is righteous will live. Both being effectively the same. So Paul says, look, if you want to be right with God, if you want, if you want to win in, in the, something's far more than a game, but in the, the crucial sort of challenge of life, that is knowing that you are right with the God who created you, knowing that you're secure, knowing that you're loved, knowing that your future is absolutely certain, he says there's only one way to do it. And that's by faith. The only way to be righteous is by faith. Paul says that's the way it is. And he said, let's contrast that with the alternative, which is doing works of the law. For that, 
uh, we will uh, simply look at what else he says. The law, verse 12, is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This is a quotation from Leviticus 18, verse 5. He says, there is a way of faith which is simply believing, taking God at his word, trusting in him. That is the way you're right with God. If you want to pursue the law, you have to have a life of doing. And so he contrasts, there are two ways to live in this world. There is the way of believing, and there is the way of doing. That's it. There is the way of believing, there is the way of doing. He said, the problem is, if you pick the way of doing, you have to do it all. And you have to do it perfectly. As a matter of fact, just for those of you who love New Testament stories, you're like, you know, okay, Chris, you're quoting Old Testament, he's quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. Give me some NT, baby. Give me some New Testament, right? Many of you are familiar with the story, and if you're not, here's the story. One day, a young man who's doing pretty well for himself, they call him the rich young man, uh, which, by the way, for all of you young men and women out there, you are all rich young men and women. Uh, just side note. You're like, I, I don't feel rich, and you are. You have more than one change of clothes. You have enough food to last for more than a day. In terms of world standards, you're very rich. But this guy, by, his, by the world standards in that day, he was a rich young man. He comes to Jesus, and he said, you know, what, what must I do to make sure I'm right with God? Now, he says in a different way, how, do, how can I make sure I have eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law, how do you read it? And he said, the great summary of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus actually refers to the same passage Paul is referring to here, Leviticus 18.5. He says, you know them, then do them. He says to this young man, okay, you got the summary of the law, just go do that. Just go do that. Uh, immediately, <laughs> this very smart young man says, wait, wait, wait we got to narrow that down a little bit, you know. I mean, I, I, mean, I just said, love your neighbor as yourself. I, I, who's my neighbor? In other words, as soon as Jesus said, well, you know Leviticus chapter 18, if you know the law, just do it. He's like, uh, what part? Right? Immediately, we're hedging, right? We're, we're saying, well, I, I just need to know what the basic minimum requirement is. This is like every one of you students who toward the end of uh, the quarter or the, the section in your, your class, uh, this question comes up more and more, doesn't it? Will this be on the test? Don't, I, if, how many people are teachers out there? Do you love that question or hate that question? Uh, yeah, you know, why don't we like the question? Because what they're saying is I'm trying to hedge on how much of this stuff you're teaching I actually have to remember, right? In other words, I would like to... I would like to dump in the trash can all the stuff that won't be on the test so that I can just be responsible for what's going to be on the test. So students, next time you ask that question, what you're doing is you're devaluing everything your teacher's been doing for the last few weeks. Don't ask that question. Say, uh, here's a better way to ask that question. This is, we're totally off topic now, but just hang with me. I'm trying to help students. I was, I was a, not a great student, but teachers always, uh, and, uh, and because I would ask the question this way, while all of the instruction you've given it is like gems and gold to me, <laughs> I want to make sure that I perform as well as I can on the test because my parents are really strict, 
right? So that way you invoke empathy, you compliment them, and you find out if it's going to be on the test, right? So that's the way it is. So the rich young man, let's get back to him. Jesus says, okay, you got a good summary of the law, just go do that. And he's like, wait a second, what's exactly going to be on the test? Who exactly is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells the parable that we often call the Good Samaritan. And what he's saying is, there's no limit to what love your neighbor as yourself really means. In other words, Jesus refuses to hedge the law. You have to do it all. He uses the passage in the same way Paul is using it. If you want to go route of doing rather than route of believing, you have to do it all. Now, let's talk just for a second. I doubt that there are very many of you sitting here this morning that are reading your Old Testament and cataloging those 600 positive and negative commands, putting them all on your refrigerator, you know, and making sure you tick each of them off every single day. You know, no, we usually get some version of it. Maybe we'll narrow it down to the Ten Commandments. You know, but of course you violate the first one all the time, every day. And we say, well, if I can just try harder. And in a way, you're like me playing that dumb dopamine, you know, sort of generating game on my phone. I keep losing and I keep starting all over again. <sighs> you know, and of course, right after I have like the best score I've had in weeks, I go out like after four moves, which is pretty pathetic, you know. And but yet I say, well, just one more time. And I hit it again. And why? Because I'm a dopamine junkie. You know, I need that hit. I need to get up to, you know, 1,536. I, I don't even know that that's actually a number that's divisible by three, but let's say it is just for the sake of argument. You know, I think it is. That seems like a divisible by three number. And, and I think, okay, I'm going to get it. And people who are sitting here right now judging me, you judge me as soon as I pulled out the phone. You said, he has a phone. Isn't that a tool of the devil? And the answer is yes, it is. I mean, there's just no way around it. We're trying to redeem it for the sake of Jesus Christ, I promise, but without a doubt. And then others of you are judging me like, you mean he's wasting all his time playing stupid games he can't win? And you're judging me, and I, and I feel that, and I appreciate that, that we have gotten to know each other to that extent. But the reality is, in a much more serious way, all of us create the unbreakable wall of the law in our minds. We all are creating our laws that we are trying to obey perfectly. And we fail over and over and over again. And yet we keep doing or I live by believing. And so I keep doing it. And I don't know whether there's a dopamine release when I finally speak kindly to my wife instead of coldly or whether there's a dopamine release when I say something nice rather than negative or dopamine release whenever I actually have my quiet time, time in the Word and in prayer in the morning. We know there is. But we keep chasing it. And we decide, no, today I'm going to try the doing route rather than the believing route. 
And we live in a culture that is constantly reiterating that you're only as good as what you do. Aren't we? Have you noticed in the church for centuries we have been talking about the contrast between the way of doing and the way of believing? And yet, in our culture, we have increasingly become a culture of doing. A culture of doing. You have to do everything according to the law of the moment. Some of you, maybe some of you are, are old enough that you don't feel pulled by this, but if you're under the age of 35, you are constantly reminded of the law of the culture who is considered someone who has negative things said about them. So you must be very careful never to say a word or give a glance or uh, suggest in any way that you are critical of other people who are currently in society's good favor. You just must not. You must not post it. You must like all posts that are for them. You must do it all. You must be careful to make sure that when you talk about historical events and people, that you condemn the right people and you extol the right people or else you are in trouble. There is a law that you must not, under any circumstances, suggest that people are actually going to face judgment before God if they are not right with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. You must never do that. You must hide that as well as possible deep in your social media or deep in your personal life so that no one knows. And here's the deal in our culture. Our culture understands verse 10, doesn't it? If you blow it in one area, we are done with you. Our culture absolutely understands. Cursed is everyone who does not do the work of our current cultural law in its entirety and perfectly. You are out if you violate it. And so some of you, and we're just talking here. It's a snow day. We can talk about whatever we want. Some of you have decided you'll trade in the Christian treadmill. And you'll decide that you will look for approval and acceptance by jumping on the treadmill in the world. But do you see that its law is just as impossible to fulfill as the law of God in its 600 commands? You cannot, you will not, and you will be cursed. Wouldn't you like to get off the treadmill? Wouldn't you like to stop playing the unwinnable game? Wouldn't you like to break through that unbreakable wall? Paul says, I want you to. And so without any, any connective word like and or but or therefore, Paul just jumps right in to this amazing verse in verse 13. He says there is a breakthrough, but it's not one you're going to have. It's one that Jesus Christ did for you. Notice verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now the word redeemed comes out of the human trafficking slave market of the first century. Redeemed meant to actually pay a price to relieve someone from the status of being a slave. And so he uses this word. Another way to think about the word redeem is deliver. Christ delivered us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? 
I think what we would like in our world is we would like Jesus Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law by just saying, you know what, that whole curse thing, my heavenly father was just having a bad day when that whole curse thing happened. Just forget about the curse. That's so Old Testament. That's so, and and there have been plenty of heretics in Christian history that have done exactly this. You know, let's just forget all about that. That would be one way that Jesus Christ could have redeemed us from the curse of the law, but it wouldn't have been a very effective way. Because God, unlike us, doesn't change. And His holiness is also immutable, which just a big Presbyterian word for it, doesn't change. That means He's perfectly holy. And if He said something was right, it will always be right, now and forever. And that it is a reflection of His character. And so he can't just say, ah, forget about the consequences of not reflecting my character and glory as a creation of mine that was designed to do that. He's not just going to do that. So how does Christ redeem us from the curse of the law? It says something so radical that we cannot completely appreciate it. He became a curse for us. I say we don't understand it. Because by and large, most of us didn't grow up in an honor-shame culture. And in an honor-shame culture, the best thing that you could get was honor. And the worst thing was that you had shame. Shame on you and your family. That's why, I know I shouldn't, but I love the old Disney animated movie Mulan. Right? You know. Because it's all about honor and shame, right? Mulan and Kate, I mean, it was so progressive now that I think about it. You know, girl cross-dresses, joins the army. Eventually, she's accepted. Wow, I did not realize how prescient that movie was. But, sorry, I'm having a moment where I'm rethinking Mulan in my mind. It's okay. But the premise of Mulan is Mulan, because she disobeys her father, because she does what she shouldn't do, she brings dishonor to her family. But it turns out when you defeat the Huns and save China, that brings honor to your family, right? In other words, Mulan has successfully navigated the law of China. Isn't that interesting? And that's why it's a fantasy, right? Because it doesn't work that way, right? So in an honor-shame culture, To be cursed was absolutely unthinkable. This is why Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. Because the Jews simply cannot imagine how someone who's cursed can offer hope and salvation. How can someone cursed do anything for anyone else? They're cursed. And so this is unthinkable. So we need to understand that. Paul says, how does God redeem us? How does Jesus Christ redeem us from the curse? He becomes a curse for us. Now we see this idea a little bit in Old Testament passages like Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 4 through 6, a passage you might hear read 
uh, during communion sometimes. This is referring about the, a servant who would also suffer. It says, surely he, the suffering servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all." You see, here Isaiah, he, he by the Spirit of God, he, he was seeing that somehow someone would come and be able to remove the effects of the curse of the law. Paul says, that's Jesus. Jesus was able to deliver us from the curse because none of us have or can fulfill the law of God by becoming a curse for us. Or, man, I love it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says it in a different way, but he's saying the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to become sin, made him to be a curse. And then notice Paul uses for confirmation there in verse 13, a Bible passage, right? Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, verse 23. Uh, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, originally back there in Deuteronomy, that passage was referring to the fact that even when you executed someone for some great sin, uh, and you wanted to communicate to your community that in fact they were a blasphemer against God, they were an adulterer, an idolater, or anything like that, the curse of God. And so here Paul is saying, when Jesus is put on the tree of the cross, that it was as if God were advertising the curse that every single human being is under because they cannot fulfill the law, it's on Jesus. This is called an exchange. An exchange, it's the great exchange. What is Paul saying? That you and I deserve to be cursed. We deserve to be cursed. We haven't done everything that the law commands. We may keep trying to do, but we will never do it perfectly. And so we will always end up under the curse. Jesus, on the other hand, did perfectly obey the law. He did everything that it commanded. All 600 commands, he did perfectly. And yet at the end of his life, instead of being rewarded and welcomed into heaven, he went to a cross which was the sign of a curse. Why? Because the penalty for sin had to be paid. The curse had to be dealt with. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 said, In the cross, God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes. In other words, the penalty, the consequence of rebellion against God had to be paid, and the consequence is a curse. And so Jesus became the curse by taking what I deserved. And here's the beauty. Do not miss this. And if I have faith in Him, He gives to me the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I know, sitting in this room, we have some old pro-Christians. And old pro-Christians have no problem accepting the first half of that statement. We say, glory, Jesus took away my sins. You know, right? You know, that old rugged cross, right? I love it. 
Because there my sins were taken away. But we often forget, and there the righteousness of Christ was imputed to me. In other words, just as true as Jesus became a curse for me, I have been not only delivered from the curse, but I have been given a right standing before God as if I were Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that just mind-numbing? It is so mind-numbing that we don't believe it. Because if you're like me, you have one of those days where you sort of had goals and some of them were good spiritual goals and they were laid out in front of you. And if you're like me, you didn't hit them all. You, you didn't spend quite as much time in study as you thought. You didn't reflect quite as much in prayer. You didn't get to that good deed you hoped to do for that person uh, that you don't like very much. And so you go to bed at night and you say to yourself, and at least this is what I say to myself, you are a big, ugly loser slug. That's usually my favorite. I know it's close to worm, but I know people don't like worm theology, so we'll call it slug theology, right? What is your problem? You had such good intentions. You had every resource in the world. You were on the right track. Why did you? And do you know, at least for me, when I am doing that, what I'm saying is, I know the only way to be right with God is by believing, but I am determined to do it by doing. In other words, my value is connected to how well I perform. My value is connected to how much I've done. And Paul says, do you understand if your value is based on what you have done, you're under a curse. But that Jesus has become a curse so that you recognize that your value is as infinite as the value of Jesus Christ. So whenever, and my wife occasionally does this for me, sometimes she's like, yeah, you're a big slug. Um, I mean, she doesn't. She actually doesn't. She's very sweet to me. But, but oftentimes she will say, you know, something along the lines of, that's right, you're right and the Bible's wrong. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, Jesus, he just couldn't do it. His sacrifice on the cross just wasn't quite enough for you. But isn't that what we're saying every time? That we think, our standing before God is because of what we do. The only standing we get before God in what we do is breakable curse. But God in His grace has said, I will take care of that. I will break through that unbreakable wall. Today, there are some of you who are struggling hard. It's not a joke. It's not funny how you feel about yourself right now. If I were to ask you to assess your value, you would say it was, my, it was in the negative numbers. And it's because for maybe days or weeks or months or years, you have continued to fall short of what you thought you should be able to accomplish and you feel like you have no value whatsoever. If you don't hear anything else, struggler, friend, brother, sister, I want you to hear me. You are infinitely valuable to God because of Jesus Christ. Stop trying to do Belief. 
believe. And you say, well, I did believe, but I still feel this way. I know. That's why we have to continue to repent that we jump back on the treadmill of the unbreakable wall of the law and try to do. And we say, Lord, forgive me for thinking I can do it. I know I can't do it. Forgive me and help me to remember that Jesus Christ has done it all for me. And you say, how many times do I have to do that? As often as you forget the truth of the gospel. We have to train our hearts and minds to apply the gospel through repentance and faith Moment by moment, day after day, week after week, year after year. And in doing so, we will grow to become more like Jesus. Why? Because we are constantly thinking of Him. And how valuable and precious He is and all that He's done for us. So get off the unwinnable game. And come, come to Jesus and rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. Thank You. Forgive me, Lord, for the many, many times in small and big ways, I think I'm finally going to be able to do it in my own strength. And it just simply will never happen. I will never be able to fulfill all of the law's commands. Thank you that you have shown me not only the futility but the needlessness of going down the road of doing because you have brought me through your spirit into the reality of believing. May we be believers. May we repent of being doers when it comes to our relationship with you, our value and significance in you. Help us, Lord. For I know that when we rest in the finished redeeming work of Jesus Christ, there is great joy. There is great freedom. There is great love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.